It's beginning to feel a lot like summer out there. Um, and I'm glad. I like that. I like that. Um, boy, my, my family had a great weekend. We went up to Oklahoma Christian, the campus, on Friday. Great Cities Ministry that trained our mission team was hosting, it's their 40th anniversary, they're hosting this big retreat for all of these mission teams that they have sent out, starting the, with the 1961 Sao Paulo team, all the way up to, I don't know, uh, they've got teams on the field right now. I don't think they were there at the retreat. But um, we had a great, great weekend. We were singing in English, in Portuguese, in Spanish. Uh, we were breaking up into groups. And this is the most powerful thing. Lots of tears, lots of laughter. Uh, the first night we shared stories. Uh, the funniest thing that happened to you on the mission field is so just all these crazy stories. And then the second day we shared the most powerful thing that you saw God do. And it was just amazing once again to see God is not dead. God is alive. God is well. God is working in our world. And by the way, uh, I told people this week, um, even though this has been a very, very hard week for our church family at Preston Crest with all that the Chestnut family has gone through uh, with, their, uh, with their baby JC and the death of baby JC 51 minutes after she was born, uh, it's been a very hard week, but in many ways, this has been, I think, the finest hour of Preston Crest since I've been here. It's been incredible to see God moving through his people. And also, I can't, I, you just see these things that you just can't doubt, the reality of God. You, um, and one of them was this little tiny baby lived for 51 minutes. And what an incredible impact that child had on me and had on so many people. Uh, it's not how long you live, right? Uh, it's what you do with that time you have. And that tiny baby was used by God to do a lot of good in a lot of people's lives. And so I just, I praise God for that. And we continue to, to mourn and pray for the Chestnut family. If you want to follow along this morning, we'll be in the bulletin. Uh, there's an outline as well as online. Thank you for the team up top for fixing some of our technical errors this morning. Those guys know what they're doing, and they did a great job getting our audio on our streaming up, uh, which was having some difficulties, and they figured out the microphone deal as well, so they're doing great up there. We started a few weeks ago this series called I Never Said That, um, and one of my kind of behind-the-scenes, I guess it won't be anymore, but behind-the-scenes goals for this series is I want us to be like the Bereans. Um, no, not the, not the J.J. Bereans, okay? But the people from the ancient city of Berea, we hear about them in Acts chapter 17. You may have no clue what I'm talking about, but Paul and Silas are going around, they're teaching, they're preaching, they're explaining the good news about Jesus Christ all over the ancient world. They go to this city called Berea, and Paul and Silas are teaching, and they're preaching about the cross, uh, the meaning of, of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And the Bereans are called people of more noble character because they were excited, they were happy about that message. But they went home, and they searched through the Scriptures to see if what Paul and Silas were teaching was true. And the Bible actually applauds them, says, yes. That's what we need to be doing. And that's really what we want to do, not just in this series, but we want to do as individual Christians. Don't just believe something I say or someone else says on a podcast or something or in a book. Check it out. 
Um, open your Bible and consider what Scripture says. See if it's true or not, especially if you hear something that sounds different. If you say, wait, I'm not so sure about that. And so the Bereans did that in Acts chapter 17. They were praised for that. And I hope that we will be a people as well who, who look to what God says in His Word rather than just what maybe we want to hear. Um, and so we've already in this series, I never said that. Things God, if he heard us say, would say, wait a second, I never said that. We talked about follow your heart. God never said that. Uh, last week we talked about God will never give you more than you can handle. Biblically, those ideas don't hold up. God never promised either of those things or taught either of those things. And this morning we'll look at another one of those uh, sayings that I bet you have heard many, many times. It is, God just wants me to be happy. God just wants me to be happy. Well, I suppose it's normal and in many ways healthy to look after your own happiness. But... This is the deal, as I've been studying for this message, the obsession, okay, the cultural fixation with personal happiness, it is a relatively new thing. Um, if you get on Amazon, I did this, last, I think, Wednesday or Thursday, uh, and I looked up how many books are there on happiness. Okay, there are currently, or as of Wednesday, 96,499. That's a lot of books on happiness. What's interesting, though, is 30 years ago, there were almost no books written about how to find happiness. And I think that is remarkable and points to a massive shift that has happened culturally, that's happened in how we think. Up until the 1800s, more or less, folks tended to think that the most important thing in life was to be good, right? That was like the highest ideal was to be a good person. Then this cultural shift happened and happiness, individual, the pursuit of individual happiness shot to the top of the chart. Um, here's a little bit of Trivia that you may or not may not be interested in, but in the 1800s there was a British economist and philosopher named Jeremy Bentham who invented a great word here, utilitarianism, which basically is the enshrinement of happiness. The greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. I bet you've heard that before. That's how decisions should be made in politics. That's how I should make decisions in my own life. That's what Bentham taught. And since then, this fixation on happiness has gotten greater and greater. Before that, Aristotle and Jesus and most of the philosophers and moral teachers and religious leaders before that taught that happiness was a byproduct of a virtuous life, okay? Happiness was a byproduct of being a good person, um, and so happiness was secondary. Not anymore, okay? Not anymore. And to be clear, let's be very clear about this. It's not that God wants you to be unhappy. That's not what we're saying. It's not that God somehow delights in your misery, but this phrase, God just wants me to be happy. God would say, uh-uh, I never said that. So check this out. Just a few things to consider this morning. If God just wants me to be happy, then the first bullet point there on your outline is God exists to serve me. 
I mean, that's a necessary inference there. If God just wants me to be happy, then he exists to serve me and not the other way around. Um, You really have to then ask the question, who is God? Who is Lord? Is it me or is it him? Uh, I mean, if he is just kind of my personal celestial concierge whose job is to make sure that my bliss levels are as high as they can be, um, then really he's serving me and not the other way around. Um, And really, I guess the upshot of that is I'm really attending the church of me. Whether I go to church or not, it's really the church of me, the religion of me. Um, And just working this out logically, this is that second bullet point there. If God just wants me to be happy, then whatever makes me happy has to be right. And whatever makes me unhappy must be wrong. Um, Don't like your spouse anymore, not enjoying your marriage, then the right thing to do is to divorce and look for an upgrade. Uh, Don't enjoy the messages that Gordon is preaching at Preston Crest, then the right thing to do is to go find another church where those messages make you feel a little bit better about yourself, where you're a little happier when you leave the parking lot on Sunday morning. Um, Your eight-year-old kid's baseball team did not win the game, did not win a, a single game during their little league season. He's sad. Your boy is sad. We can't have that. Give them all a trophy. Give everybody a trophy. Because ultimately, the most important thing is that we're all happy. Um, Now consider this. If God wants me to be happy, this is one I think is something to think about. If God just wants me to be happy, he must not want you to be happy. If he wants me happy, he must not want you to be happy because at times what makes me happy will make you unhappy, right? I mean, um, here's the deal. There are a lot of situations, a lot of um, occasions, a lot of things in life that can make people happy, but oftentimes for one person to be happy, it means another person is unhappy. It happens all of the time. Okay, if God just wants me to be happy, then the Rangers would win every single game. So he must want all of the Mariners fans or the Astros fans to be unhappy. Does that make sense? Okay, Um, if God just wants me to be happy, then I get the promotion at work. You don't. Okay. Um, So there's this exclusivity with a lot of things that would make us happy. For one person to get it and another person uh, default doesn't get that. Sorry, kids. I know you would be thrilled to to spend time with me, your daddy, this weekend. But what would make me happy would be hanging out with my bros all weekend. So sorry. My happiness means your unhappiness. So just to be clear, very clear on what we are saying when we say to ourselves, God just wants wants me to be happy. If he wants me to be happy, then he wants a lot of other people to be unhappy. Um, Finally, if God just wants me to be happy, in the final analysis, then the God I'm serving is not the God of the Bible. Now, this should not be a huge shock, a huge surprise to you, but if that's the God I'm serving, the one who just wants me to be happy, then I'm not serving the God of the Bible from the Garden of Eden all the way to to, to the book of Revelation, um, what we find in the Bible is he has a higher calling for us, a higher purpose for us. Um, he paid a very high price 
so that we could belong to him, so that we could be his daughters and sons, so that we could walk in fellowship with him. So, this is on the outline as well. (laughs) What God really wants is not for me to be happy. Again, not that he wants me to be unhappy, but what he really wants is for me to be his. For me to belong to him. Um, And while we all, all of us, enjoy plenty, while everybody likes to be surrounded by pleasant circumstances, God knows what we need more than we know what we need, and he knows what will bring us abiding joy. He knows what will bring us depth and meaning as human beings, and he knows that we find all of that in him, in him. Um, So he loves us. He wants for us to find ourselves in what he has done for us, in his love for us. And he wants for us to then become this people that are so full of gratefulness and joy because of that, that we find our lives in him, we find our heart's desire in him. Now often, often people are looking for meaning and well-being in their situation, okay? In their situation, believers are called to discover meaning and purpose and richness in life in their Savior independently of their situation, right? So situation, no, no shocker here, situation-based happiness is extremely volatile, all right? Has a very short shelf life, right? If I need for everything to conspire, I mean, the air conditioning needs to be working in here, everything, my car needs to be running perfectly, blah, 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 blah. Starbucks was a little slow this morning, truth, I got a little irritated there. Um, if, if everything needs to work just right for me, then, boy, I'm in for a real uphill battle in life, aren't I? Savior-based happiness is deeper, right? It's much more lasting, much more permanent than that. So let's go to our text this morning. Let's see what God does say, okay? So we're going to go a lot of places we could go. What an amazing passage from the Apostle Paul to a church in Rome. Romans chapter 8. Pretty extensive reading this morning. Verses 28 to 39. I want you to see what the Holy Spirit is valuing and what he has for you and me in Jesus, okay? Starting at verse 28, this is from the New Living Translation. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Now, a lot of times we stop right there. It's like, yeah, God does want me to be happy, see? Okay, but there's a lot more going on here. So he does work in everything um, for the good of those who love him. For God knew his people in advance. He chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Having chosen them, he called them to come to him. Having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. He justified them. And giving them right standing, he gave them his glory. So, what shall we say then about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son 
but gave him up for all of us, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. If Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us and is sitting at the right, uh, at the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us, okay, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves us? Key verse. Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, you are, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No. Despite these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. For Paul says, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither fears for today nor worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. God will never love you more than he loves you right now. And nothing is going to change that here on earth. And when I read this text, this breathtaking text, I come away thinking that where I am supposed to find richness and satisfaction in life is in the Savior. It's not in situations, okay? Um, And one thing that the Holy Spirit reveals to us in this text, this is that number one there on the outline this morning, is this, and this is important for us to realize, okay, is that situations for believers aren't necessarily better than anyone else's, okay? Paul is explicit here. Challenges and difficulties happen for believers and for non-believers. He says, in all these things, and he's talking about virtually anything that can happen in human life, in all of these things. Um, So Christians, non-Christians, we all have to face basically the same kinds of circumstances in life. It does not say that God works in believers' lives by, by orchestrating purely happy circumstances. And we know that. We, we've lived long enough to know that. It says that he is at work in all things, whether good or bad. And just so we're clear, the Spirit lists some of those circumstances that Paul is talking about. Verses 35 to 38. Uh, the Holy Spirit through Paul's pen lists troubles, calamities... Persecution, hunger, danger, demons, fears, worries. He says, in all of that stuff, God's love for you has not changed one iota. The ability of God to work through your life has not changed at all. 
Um, the Word of God is very direct with us, with our hearts. The person who loves the Lord, the person who worships the Lord, and the person who doesn't are going to face the same types of difficulties. Okay? Um, here is the difference. This is number two on the outline. Here is the key difference. Number two, God uses all situations, even the unhappy ones, for his ultimate purpose. Making us, and we talk about this a lot around here because this is the key concept here for discipleship, making us more like Jesus. If you have given your life to Christ, if you've believed on his name and been baptized into Jesus Christ, his purpose for you is to make you, by the power of his spirit, through the church, through the word, through circumstances of life, through all things, to make you more like Jesus, to make you love God more like Jesus loves God, to make you love people more like Jesus loves people. And if my happiness is tied to my ability to manipulate the world around me to my liking, to avoid anything painful or disappointing, then I've really got my work cut out for me. On the other hand, if I can discover myself in this reality, if I can embrace this truth that God is at work in all of this for His purpose, for my good and for His glory, He's at work in all of it to make me more like Jesus, then I find purpose even in my pain. And this one's huge. Number three, I'm not going to say a lot about it, but this is one that you, we just want to meditate on, right, and be shaped by. Number three is this. In Him, in Jesus Christ, we are called. In Him, we are justified. We're made right with God. And in Him, we are glorified. All of that comes from verse 30. That includes, if you think about being justified, so you're forgiven of all of your past sins... Okay? That's not held against you. You get to wear the righteousness of Jesus. So you are, your past is taken care of. Okay? And you are called. That means right now, right here, there's a calling on your life. You woke up today with a purpose, a God-given purpose. Okay? And you are glorified in Christ. That includes everything, past, present, and future eternity in heaven. All of that you have in Jesus Christ. None of that you've got to worry about. Christ has got that. He's got that. Um, so I think that makes a big difference. And number four, it gets us to number four here. Um, when life gets tough, we can continue on because we have this absolute certainty. As Paul says here, God is for us. God is not against you. God is for you. All right? And he says in verse 32, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not... And think about that. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. The most precious thing that God has, his son Jesus Christ, he wouldn't even spare that because of his love for you. He gave Jesus on the cross for you. 
Uh, let's read that one out loud together. If you would read that verse with me, starting with, If God, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. Woo! And it really does, at times, grieve me to run into you know, good church-going folks who, who have these nagging doubts, this nagging question, does God really love me? I don't feel like I'm loved by God. Or God must not love me because I lost my baby. Or I lost my job. Or I lost my home. So, so look, God doesn't really love me because all of that. Romans 32 says, look, He gave His Son for you. He went all the way for you, for your good, because He loves you. He says, with that kind of empirical data, the death of Jesus for you, you really don't get to doubt that He loves you. You really don't get to do that, okay? God is for you. He proved it. What more could He have done for you? Then give up his own son for you on the cross. That's one of the things I appreciate about our tradition here at Preston Crescent Churches of Christ. I've taken communion every single Sunday. I love that because no matter how the week has gone, high fives and celebrations or sitting at home mourning, crying, no matter how your week has gone, a promotion at work or getting a pink slip or a clean bill of health from the doctor or the results you're in and... They're, they're, they're not good, okay? Uh, no matter how the week has gone, we are reminded every time we break the bread, every time we, we take the cup, we are reminded of the body and blood of Jesus shed for us. For us. God is for us. Every time we break the bread, we remember He is for us. As Paul wrote, look, if God is for you, you're set, okay? If God is for you, who... <laughs> Who are you worried about, okay? Um, number five here. Difficult or unhappy circumstances are necessary. This is probably the hardest part for us to... We can agree with it intellectually, but like to just, wow, yeah, I love this. But it's true. Difficult circumstances are necessary in life for personal growth. For my personal growth. Um, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Verse 37, I think about all those men and women who are training for the Olympics right now. I guarantee you they are going through a lot of pain, a lot of personal deprivation. They're going through a lot of struggle because they know that's going to prepare them to have an opportunity to get on the medal stand this summer in Rio. They're going to wake up early. They're going to eat some foods that they would probably prefer not to eat. And not eat some foods that they would really love to dive into. And they're going to do a lot of things to get themselves ready. They're going to create for themselves some difficult circumstances in order to get stronger. And he says, Paul says, we are more than conquerors. Well, here is one thing that every conqueror has in common. They all have gone through some intense battles. Okay? Conquerors have gone through the arena they have faced challenges. It's been hard. Otherwise, they're not a conqueror. But they've come out on the other side. Of course, if God just 
wanted me to be happy, then I never would have to face battles in life. I never would even have the opportunity to be a conqueror, much less more than a conqueror. In Christ Jesus, we are more than conquerors because of his love for us um, and because of his love through us. We don't lose hope in these difficult circumstances because what he has done for us is greater than anything the world can do to us. Yeah, that deserves an amen. What God has done for us is greater than anything the world can do to us. Um, That's the reality that we live in because of Jesus. So finally, number six. Nothing matters more than that. Than the reality that God loves us and nothing can separate us. Nothing can separate us from his love. What an amazing verse here. Verse 39. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. So back to that little phrase. God just wants me to be happy. The reality is God just wants me to be His. He wants me to be His. And His love for me is so deep. His love for you is so deep. When you surrender yourself to his love and to his lordship, then there is nothing in this world that is bigger than that. So this morning, is it time for you to surrender your life to the lordship of Jesus and to that love, that eternal love that was declared for you on the cross of Calvary? Are you ready to do that and become a disciple of Jesus, being baptized into his name, being added to his church, and receiving this justification, receiving this calling on your life, and looking forward to the glorification that he has for you? Maybe that's what you need to do. Or maybe you just need prayers this morning. Maybe it's been one of those weeks, and you've gotten to see some of those hardships and troubles that Paul was talking about, and you just need prayers. However you need to respond this morning, we'd invite you to do that as we stand together and rejoice in him.